time and life with you, and to share God's word as well. So come with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2. And uh, let's start off by thinking about this lovely lady. On the, um, the 6th of February this year, the Queen became the first British monarch to reach their Sapphire Jubilee. On Monday the 6th of February, she became, uh, she, this lady reigned for an astonishing 65 years. The Royal Mint marked this historic occasion with a, a range of specially designed silver sapphire jubilee commemorative coins. The Royal uh, Mail issued a sapphire blue five-pound stamp and a portrait by David uh, Bailey uh, was reissued, taken in 2014. It shows the Queen wearing this uh, suit of suite of sapphire jewellery given to her by King George VI as a wedding gift. And Princess, and uh, sorry, should we not Princess? Prime Minister. (laughs) (laughs) Ex-Princess Theresa May offered her congratulations by hailing the Queen as truly an inspiration to us all. Well, it's not the Queen that's inspiring the Apostle Paul in our passage. He's being inspired by somebody else. He is utterly captivated, motivated and activated by someone else, by the King of Kings. And as we come to Philippians chapter 2, there are just three very simple things I want to just remind you of. Nothing new um, about the Lord Jesus. I want us to think about the position he had. I want us to think about the position he took. And I want us to think about the position he has now. So come with me to the position he had. And I want you to notice where Paul begins in verse 5. He doesn't begin with Christmas. He doesn't even begin with Old Testament prophecy. No, he starts in eternity and asserts that Jesus in his very nature is God. Jesus is equal with God. Now that's controversial enough for a Jewish scholar like Paul, but he is much more daring than that. Because what Paul is doing in uh, verses 6, 7, and 8 is beginning to explore the very psychology of God. He's trying to get into the mind of God himself because, you see, what shocks Paul is not so much the equality that Jesus claims with God. It's not Jesus' divinity that is so shocking to Paul. It's what he chooses to do with his divinity. To let go of it who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. The the Queen was born on the 21st of April, uh, 1926, born into a position of huge privilege. What's she done with her privilege? Well, she's used it in wonderful ways to serve us. But the Lord Jesus has done that on an infinitely grander scale. He'd lived with the privileges of heaven. And yet look what Paul says here. He's not willing to use his position to his own advantage. Instead, he uses his position for our advantage. So from the position Jesus had, let's move on to the position that Jesus took. One of my favourite photos of the uh, 
queen is this beautiful young girl in uniform during the war. This isn't my favourite uh, picture. My favourite picture is she's looking under the bonnet of an old Austrian car. On, on this one, she's uh, changing the wheel on an old army truck and, and trying to look like she's one of us. Well, I'll leave you to work out whether she looks like one of us or not. But Jesus became one of us. Literally. God took on a body just like ours. The creator became a creature. Jesus could not have had a higher social standing than was his. Before all the worlds were made, he was God. And yet he made himself nothing and took the very nature of a servant. And instead of doing what we do and making our way slowly up the greasy pole, he comes sliding down the greasy pole. But, but look at the next step in Jesus' grand descent, verse 7. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. If being made in human likeness is demeaning enough for a universe-creating God, we'd expect him, wouldn't we, to, be, to arrive in state and to be laid in a five-star nursery. But no, he's born into a borrowed stable and laid into an animal feeding trough. He makes himself nothing. It is a deliberate act. But Paul isn't finished yet. He goes on, verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. The prince of life humbles himself yet further. He steps even further down the ladder. He gives up the very right to life itself and becomes obedient to death. But not just any old death, notice. Death on a cross. Now for Romans, crucifixion is reserved for the very lowest orders of society. It's the kind of thing you don't talk about over fish and chips <laughs> on a Saturday afternoon. But Jesus is not a Roman. He's a Jew. And for the Jews, crucifixion is infinitely worse. To be nailed to a cross of wood is a sure sign that you're cursed by God himself. I think a little bit like singing hymns, reading passages like this is, is a little too easy. Familiarity breeds contempt. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to make yourself nothing? I'm reminded of an account by Primo Levi of his time in Auschwitz. He wrote a book called If This Is a Man. If This Is a Man. And in this book, Primo Levi describes what it meant to him to be nothing. He speaks of his SS guards like this. They hear us speak in many languages which they do not understand and which sound to them as grotesque as animal noises. They see us reduced to ignoble slavery, without hair, without honour, without names, beaten every day, more abject every day. They never see in our eyes any light of rebellion or peace or faith. They know us as thieves and untrustworthy, muggy, muddy, ragged and starving. And mistaking the effect for the cause, they judge us as worthy of our abasement. Who of them could tell one of our faces apart from another? That's gathering the Christ what it means to be nothing. 
the bit of cruelty of being treated as though you are simply an animal. But the big question confronting us here in this passage is not if this is a man, but if this is a God. What God would be like this? Because do you see what this means? Jesus not only gave up the right to live, he gave up the right to a relationship with the Father he loved more than anyone else in all of heaven, in all of earth, in all of time, in all of eternity. The, the NIVs, he humbled himself, is a kind of cosmic understatement. The Lord Jesus utterly humiliated himself. He became an outcast, not only on earth, but in heaven. In our world dominated by rights, the Lord Jesus relinquished every right of his. He became less than nothing. That's the position he took. Isn't that interesting? Hardly, hardly an appropriate question, is it? Isn't that shocking? But take a look at the Lord Jesus and you'll begin to see what God is like. Because God is not a grabbing, grasping God. He's a giving God to the point of giving his own son. Why? What makes the Lord Jesus like this? What makes him do this? Well, it is love, and, and not just love for us, but supremely love for his Father. The staggering thing, most staggering thing of all is that Jesus didn't just die on the cross for me. He died on the cross for his Father. Jesus was doing it all out of obedience to him. Not my will, but yours be done. And that's why verse 9 begins with the word therefore. Because from the position that Jesus had and the position that Jesus took, we need to move on to the position that Jesus has now. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. God simply isn't willing that his son should languish in a grave. So he raises him up and Jesus bursts from the tomb and, and death's chain simply cannot hold on to him. And the first Christians who pen this primitive hymn, for this is what it is, realize why the empty tomb is God's seal of approval on the son who has done all But God does much more than simply raise his son from the dead. Just as Jesus climbs lower and lower and lower down the social ladder of position and prestige, so God raises him higher and higher and higher. In fact, to the highest place of all, to the supreme place of power and honour in the universe, at his own right hand. Yet there's more to come. He gave him the name that is above every name. Read casually and you could be forgiven for thinking that the name that is above every name is the name of Jesus. But read a little more carefully and you'll see that at the name belonging to Jesus, every knee will bow. What is the name that belongs to Jesus? Well, verse 11 has it. 
that at the name belonging to Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue can acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the name that will be on every tongue one day. As every knee bows and everyone confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now to biblically literate folk like us, this ought to resonate. It ought to ring a bell. And we'll remember, maybe we can't quite remember where it is, but we know it's there somewhere, and that the answer is it's in Isaiah 45. We remember something that sounds a little bit like this. There is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Now you just start looking at verses 9, 10 and 11 while I read Isaiah 45 to you. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. They will say of me in the Lord alone our deliverance and strength. If you've done your Bible overview, you'll know why this is so important. Lord is the Old Testament way that the NIV translates the name of God Yahweh. God bestows upon his son the personal name, his very own name by which he reveals himself to men and women all through the Old Testament. Yahweh, Lord, is the God who speaks through Isaiah. And this is the God who is revealed to be Jesus. And one day the whole world will know it. Jesus Christ is Lord. And even our Queen, will bow the knee and shout, Long live the King. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus, the one who becomes humanity's slave, is crowned as humanity's King. Talk about a rags to riches story. So there's the position that Jesus had, the position that he took and the position that he has now. And verses 5 through to 11, they offer to us one of the most sublime passages in the whole of the New Testament about the person and work of the Lord Jesus. But this is why we're talking about it this afternoon. Because I want you to see where it's set. Paul chooses to talk about the Lord Jesus in this place because he's talking to us about the position we should now adopt. Come back with me, will you, to where the passage begins. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. That's why Paul talks about the Lord Jesus in the way that he does. That's why he talks about the position that he had, the one he took and the one he has now because of the position we should adopt. Make my joy complete by being like-minded. If you could have just one more thing that would make your life complete, what would it be? Winning the jackpot on the national lottery? Well, maybe not in this setting. Getting round through to the next round of The Voice UK? Well, by, the listening, by hearing your singing, you, you already are through to the next round. 
Maybe by never having to work again. Certainly in my mind. Ask Paul that question. Paul, what would make your joy complete? And remembering everything we reflected on this morning, we might expect him to say something like, well, if I could just be released from this prison cell, that wouldn't be a bad start. If only these chains could be removed. If only I could have a nice bed for the night. Even a change of diet would be very welcome. But no. See, what will make Paul's joy complete is nothing to do with him and his cell. It's to do with his friends in Philippi. Paul's not looking out for anything to do with himself. See, why do you think he needs to say this to them at this point? And the answer is because there's just a hint of disunity in Philippi. Nothing critical yet, no great split. But there is a personality clash between two women that is threatening the unity of the congregation. We'll think a little bit more about that tomorrow. For now Paul sees the danger signs. And he appeals for unity with all the passion he can muster. They say there are three kinds of preacher. There are those you can't listen to, those you can, and those you must. Paul's in the latter category. You have to listen to him. And just you see how he kind of grabs our attention right at the start of chapter 2 in these four staccato phrases. He kind of wakes us up with the thought that if this, then that. Does knowing Jesus give you a reason for getting out of bed in the morning? Well, if this, then that. That's how you should live. Does the love of Jesus embrace you in your darkest moments? If it does then that's how you should live. Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is alive and living in you? If you believe that, then this is how you should live. Has the love of Christ melted your heart? Well, if that's true, then this is how you should live. If this, then that. Again and again and again. And look how he works that exhortation out in verse 2. He urges them to be united at the level of their thinking. Being like-minded. That doesn't mean to say that we all have to agree with each other all the time. Someone has wisely said that if we all think the same thing, we're probably not all thinking. That means having the, the, kind of the same attitude, the same mindset. And then he wants them to be united, look, at the level of their emotions, having the same love. Not necessarily loving the same things, because we're all different but growing in an atmosphere where love is the dominant force. He wants them to be united in their decision-making, not uh, being one in spirit and purpose. We don't always agree on how we're going to get there, but we should agree on where we're trying to go. It's not dull uniformity that, that Paul's after here. It's a living, dynamic unity in which we're free to be ourselves on the one hand and utterly committed to each other on the other. And how do we achieve that? It's all down to sharing the same attitude as the Lord Jesus. Remembering the position that he had, the one he took and the one he has now. That's what Paul wants to talk to us about in this passage. 
brothers, and there are things that will threaten our unity. And he outlines three of them. Look in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Gore Vidal was um, an American uh, writer and intellectual who died in 2012. He wasn't a Christian. He once described the Christian faith as the greatest disaster ever to strike the West. He also wrote this in a magazine article. It is not enough to succeed. Others must fail. Whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. Isn't that shocking? It's not enough to succeed. Others must fail. Whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. You don't have to be uh, of Gore Vidal's considerable intellect to work out that rivalry of that kind spells death to any hope of deep and lasting unity. What Paul's concerned about here is the desire for personal prestige. Personal prestige is such a dangerous snare. To be admired, to be respected, to be ushered to the best seats, to have your opinions sought on all kinds of things. I was very interested that the number plate VIP1 was bought by Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich. He bought it in a fiercely contested auction in 2006. A fiercely contested auction suggests to me that there were quite a lot of people around who liked to think of themselves as very important persons. Self-importance is such an unattractive quality, isn't it? I must confess I love the story of the VIP who was infuriated by what he regarded as incompetent service from the new steward of his club. Don't you know who I am? He thundered. No, sir, replied the steward, but if you wait just a moment, I'll go and make some inquiries. <laughs> Self-importance is utterly nauseating, but it is also utterly destructive. The opposite of self-importance is humility. And this afternoon, Paul exhorts us to wake up and take a long, hard look in the mirror. Humility doesn't mean being unrealistic. Humility doesn't mean Andy Murray has to throw away his racket because he didn't get through to the Wimbledon final again this year. That's not humility. That's false modesty. No, Paul doesn't want us to think less of ourselves. He just <coughs> wants us to think of ourselves less. Selfish ambition. Self-importance, self-centeredness. These are the major driving forces behind the me-first generation that dominates our lives today. And this afternoon, Paul challenges us to be different. For Jesus' sake, be different. I love the little touch in verse 2. Then make my joy complete. Paul knows full well what the Philippian Christians think of him. They think the world of him. It was through their ministry that loads of them came to faith in the first place. He knows they'll do pretty much whatever he asks them. And I love the way he's not afraid to play this personal card. No, 
you want to make my joy complete, we stand together and be united. Well, we can just imagine how Paul's critics can respond to this. Yeah, 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 they say. We've heard it all before. Who do you know who ever lives like this? Come on, Paul, be real. Now, the critics are right. There's an obvious problem here. I don't know about you, but I feel totally overwhelmed by this. I, I look at the Lord Jesus in love and awe and admiration, but, but I'm not like that. And frankly, the example of the Lord Jesus on its own isn't enough. I just can't do that. My sinful nature is still very grabbing and very grasping. And here is Paul asking me to go right against the grain. To be like Jesus? Well, that's a wonderful dream. But no, it is completely beyond me. In truth, I look in the mirror and I wonder how I dare call myself a Christian. So in a sense, the critics are right. But come with me really to the other end of our passage and let's kind of pick it up in verse 12. Therefore, dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. It is God who wills and God who acts in order to fulfill his good purpose. And do you know what God's good purpose is? That you should be like the Son that Paul has just described in verses 6 through to 11. The whole point of God giving his son to be the world's slave is so that you and I can become like him. The point that Paul wants us to take on board this afternoon is that the root of our happiness is found right here. In becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus, in sharing more and more fully the same attitude as Jesus, in learning more and more deeply to climb down the social ladder to reach others like Jesus. That's the paradox of the Christian life, isn't it? It is as we humble ourselves under God, as we serve others, as we put their interests first, that God promises to raise us up. We've been wonderfully blessed with Queen Elizabeth II, haven't we? But God has done something, Jesus has done something for us that she could never do. He's laid down his life for us. And that's the secret of true happiness, isn't it? Jesus isn't nailed to a cross today. Or laid in a tomb. He's alive. And he's here. And it is the risen, active Lord Jesus who's captivating and motivating and activating the Apostle Paul. And that's why Paul can say this afternoon that he's 99% happy. But he wants us to respond, he wants us to respond to the claims of Jesus too. Pretty hard to say no, one, to, say no to someone who's willing to die for you, isn't it? One day, we'll all bow the knee and cry long live the king. But Paul doesn't want us to wait till then. This church weekend at home would be a wonderful time for us to bow the knee and renew our allegiance to Jesus, King of Kings.
in a moment of <coughs> quiet. Can you reflect in your heart as I need to do in mine over the things that will stop us from being like the Lord Jesus? I don't know what those things are. You do. And could we confess them to Father God? He knows about them. But he wants to hear us owning them. And then ask him for the help of the Holy Spirit to break the power of those things. So that we can truly serve one another. Not for all that we will get back as a result. But for all the good that we can do. In Jesus' name. Father, we do thank you for the inspiring example of the Lord Jesus. But if that is all we had, it would not be enough. Thank you that you are at work in us to will and to act in order to fulfill your good purpose to make us like Jesus. We do ask, Spirit of the living God, sent from heaven, would you so work in us and would we so cooperate with you that bit by bit by bit, selfish ambition, vain conceit, self-interest is conquered and Jesus can reign in us.